You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good morning. Please turn to John chapter 12. We'll be in John chapter 12 today. So, have you noticed anything different about the church this morning? I mean, I know it's kind of subtle, but you know, if you look carefully, you might see something that's a little different than usual. Okay, it's not subtle at all, is it? No, the church is, is decorated. Uh, we've got part of the setup for the Christmas program extravaganza, as I like to call it, that's going to happen tonight, 7 o'clock. I've got that set up over here, and then there's much more to come up here on the stage. This whole front area is going to be transformed, and we've got the tree up over here, and we've got the poinsettias, which are beautiful, and whoever put those there, thank you very much, and the, out the decorations out in the entryway, and why? Why all this? Uh, in the words of Larry the Cucumber, because it's Christmas. Right, okay. Yeah, if you've ever watched the Veggie Tales, you know that. If you haven't, forget it. Don't worry about it. It's Christmas, and tonight we'll have the Christmas program, and then, if weather permits, caroling on Wednesday. Uh, Christmas Eve service on? Christmas Eve. See, you guys are good. Right. And then Christmas Day, we'll be here again for church. And, of course, we do that whether it was Christmas Day or not. But all this because it's Christmas. And with Christmas comes Christmas music. Songs that we typically don't sing at any other time of the year. And that's too bad. Because some of those songs, I don't mean Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. Okay, I'm not talking about that one. But some of those songs reach beyond Jesus' birth and contains some great messages about the rest of Jesus' life. And one of those songs, it's not the best known, it's not the best loved Christmas song ever, uh, according to Share Faith Magazine. And I don't know anything about Share Faith Magazine, but you can guess, right? Uh, this song doesn't even make the top 20 for popular religious Christmas songs. But that song is, I Wonder As I Wander. And probably some of you know that, right? It's number 139 in our hymnal if you want to look at it. We're not singing it now or anything. But if you just wanted to take a glance at it, and there's some uh, information there, the lyrics and everything. In 1933, in Murphy, North Carolina, John Jacob Niles, who was a songwriter and singer, heard young Annie Morgan sing the first three lines of this song. And he wanted to hear more. So he paid young Annie Morgan a quarter to sing the whole thing, to sing it all the way through. Eight quarters later, he still only had the first three lines of the song. Apparently that was all he knew. So he did what any self-respecting songwriter would do. He made up his own verses, right? If you, if you can't get the real material, you just make it up as you go along. I think that's our approach here. Still, with all due respect to Mr. Niles... The three lines that he heard from young Annie Morgan are the best words of the entire song, and I think they ought never to be forgotten at Christmas. And they go like this. I wonder as I wander out under the sky 
How Jesus the Savior did come for to die for poor, ornery people like you and like I. Now, Jacob Niles added wise men, shepherds, even a cattle stall. But the original three lines of this Appalachian folk melody get right to the heart of Christmas, Easter, everything in between, everything that came before, and everything that came after. Jesus the Savior did come for to die. In a way, these lines of verse could be seen as a very short summary of the Gospel of John. John's record of the Christmas story, such as it is, is limited to chapter 1, verse 14, where he wrote, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's it. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The rest of the first half of John's Gospel prepares the reader for the last week of Jesus' earthly life before the crucifixion. And the last half of John gives details about that last week, culminating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And John chapter 12 is about the beginning of that last week. And it all points to the same thing. Jesus the Savior did come for to die. We'll begin in John chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they, almost, that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Mm. Now, up until now, Jesus had been leaving Jerusalem periodically, in part to avoid the plot by the Jew Jewish rulers to arrest him, and he now comes back to Bethany, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live, which is only about two miles from Jerusalem. From here, his next stop is Jerusalem. And he will not leave Jerusalem again until after the resurrection. Mark and Matthew both record that this supper takes place at the home of a man known as Simon the leper. We should point out that this incident is not the same as the one mentioned in Luke chapter 7, which took place in Galilee at the home of another Simon, Simon the Pharisee. Simon was a common name then. Two of Jesus' 12 disciples were known as Simon. And so that's not totally unusual. But that's the setting. And while Mark and Matthew both say that the perfume was applied to Jesus' head, John mentions that Mary, the sister of Lazarus, applied the perfume to Jesus' feet and wiped it off with her hair. Now, having anything to do with the feet 
of one of the guests. That would have been a servant's job, and, and not a high-ranking servant either. I mean, you, the low servant on the, on the schedule, okay? That, they get the foot detail there. But Mary, Mary shows her own submission to Jesus as she serves him in this way. But I think there are at least three other things about what Mary does here that we need to see. First of all, the perfume was costly. Uh, the value given in the text here was a year's wages for a day laborer. And it's called, my translation says nard. King James says spikenard. Uh, mine says pure nard. This was a plant extract imported from eastern India. Nard is mentioned in the Old Testament as being used in Solomon's royal household, which would indicate that it was quite costly. Now you can buy, I did some checking online because I don't know, for whatever reason I thought I'd look it up. You can buy the essential oil of spikenard still today. The pure, the pure stuff though, you have some? Yeah, you've seen it. Okay, good, good. Uh, now, the place where I look, now maybe there's better places and I didn't find the right spot, but the, the, I think this is the good stuff, right? A pint, which is probably about the, the amount that Mary had, will set you back almost $550. Yeah. Now, that's not a year's wages, but that's still a lot of money. Okay? Good news, though. Shipping is free. So, you know, order now, right? <laughs> okay, now the second thing that we want to look at here is we might wonder why Mary had that much costly perfume around. I mean, a year's salary for a day laborer, and here she's got it in this small alabaster, which is a, a kind of stone container. Uh, the way they'd have that is that it would be probably some kind of a long-necked container, and then it would be sealed, and not the kind of a removable seal, you know, that might leak. This would be a a seal where no, no, none of that essence would evaporate out. It was good and sealed. So that when you wanted to use it, you had to break the neck of the container. Okay, uh, some one one uh, uh, translation and a different account uh, calls it a box. Whichever it was, she had to break it to use it. Now there are many theories about why she had this much costly perfume around. Two of them stand out to me. One is that this was something that would be given as part or all of her dowry if she were to marry. Because it's so valuable, right? Make her desirable. Get the good, you know, get, get the desirable guy because she's got this to go with her as a dowry, maybe. And if that were true, then using this perfume on Jesus' head and feet makes it unlikely that she will ever marry unless she can save up that much money again. Or at least not marry in the same way. The other theory is that Mary had purchased this perfume, saved up, scrimped and saved, purchased this perfume to be used to anoint her own body in preparation for burial after she died. And since that's exactly the reason she anoints Jesus with it, that explanation seems most reasonable to me. But here's, that's the third thing that we need to see. Okay, That's the third thing here. Both Matthew and Mark record Jesus saying that Mary anointed Jesus with this perfume in preparation for his burial. Now that raises more questions. Did Jesus know, or excuse me, did Mary know Jesus was going to die? Now I'm sure she knew about the plot to kill him. Now that he's back in the vicinity of Jerusalem, she may have been afraid that the Jews would succeed in taking Jesus and killing him. So why didn't she wait for his actual burial to anoint him with the perfume? 
Well, if, she, if that's what she believed, and I'm trying to follow her thought process here, if that's what it was, she would have had no way of knowing if she would ever have any kind of access to Jesus' body after he died. And then there's another question. So she's done this, and she thinks that, what if Jesus wasn't killed? Would this have been a waste of good perfume? Absolutely not. Mary expressed her love and devotion for Jesus by humbly sacrificing what was probably her most valuable possession to honor Jesus. Whether that guaranteed that she might never marry or that her own burial would be lacking in, in some way, she was willing to give that all that she had, really, to Jesus, to honor Him. Again, both Matthew and Mark record Jesus saying that Mary would never be forgotten because of how she honored Jesus that day. And here we are talking about her. Okay. Not everyone was happy about what Mary had done. Judas asked why the perfume was not sold and the money given to the poor rather than being wasted, right? Well, John tells us that Judas acted as the treasurer for the disciples. He helped himself to whatever money they had. One commentator says that the 30 pieces of silver that Judas received for betraying Jesus was equal to about 100 denarii or one-third the value of this perfume. Now, you think about that for a minute. If the 300 denarii that this perfume was worth was equal to a, a year's wages for a day laborer, then a third of that, that's four months' wages that they had offered Judas. You go, you go betray Jesus to us, and this is what we'll give you in return. That's a lot of money, comparatively. For a greedy man, and Judas seems to be one, four months' wages would be quite the incentive to betray Jesus. And here we also find out, verses 9 through 11, we also find out that the plot to kill Jesus has expanded to include Lazarus. You know the old saying, uh, if you can't beat him, join him? No, this is if you can't beat him, kill him. Okay, that, that's their plan here. Uh, this makes sense from the perspective of the Jewish rulers. As long as Lazarus is alive, the news about his resurrection will continue to spread. If Lazarus is dead, the Jews can claim that Jesus never raised him from the dead in the first place. John tells us that, uh, he tells us again that because Jesus raised Lazarus, many of the Jews were believing in him. I don't want to skip over that too quickly. These people were there. In that context, they had to be the ones to evaluate the evidence. They, Lazarus really died. He was really in the tomb for four days. Now he's really alive again. How did that happen? Well, Jesus did it. Jesus did that? I'm going to believe in Jesus. We have to take this through their eyes, I think, and see it the way they saw it. Certainly for the Jewish rulers, the evidence that, the, that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God was overwhelming. So the Jewish rulers wanted to get rid of the evidence. In their minds, kill Jesus and Lazarus, and the problem was solved. And the irony here just irritates me. The real problem was in their own hearts. Oh, how do we, how do we handle this problem of the Messiah Jesus? Oh, let's kill him. Yeah, that'll do it. I don't get it. The real problem was in their own hearts. Let's go to verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, 
Daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now this next day that John writes about is the day that we call Palm Sunday. We often refer to Jesus entering Jerusalem as the triumphal entry. And you can see I've got a question mark up there after triumphal. John's presentation of this event is somewhat darker than the other gospel writers as everything that comes before and everything that comes after concerns Jesus' rapidly approaching death. I mean, what did we just have? We just had this woman take this costly perfume and anoint Jesus in preparation for his burial. That's dark, okay? That's somber. There's something serious about that. Now, he comes to Jerusalem, and sure, the crowds were excited, but Jesus had come back to Jerusalem to die. And John focuses on that fact. And really, you think about this. Okay, this is the crowd mentality kind of thing. The crowds were not so much hailing the king as they were demanding that he prove himself by delivering them from the Romans right now. Hosanna means save now. And I think the crowds were emphasizing the now aspect of that statement. If you're really the Messiah, Jesus then hurry up and provide whatever form and means of deliverance you have planned right now. And, of course, we know that in just a few days, the Jews will arrest Jesus, and they will hand him over to the Romans, and the Romans will crucify Jesus. And that's what I mean. There's, a, there's kind of a darkness here. And this crowd that's shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's not what they wanted to have happen to their Messiah. But that's because they didn't understand who Messiah was supposed to be. John quotes from Zechariah here to indicate that Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey was a fulfillment of prophecy. Like so many times, the disciples didn't understand the significance of the event right then. I mean, for them, the donkey was just the donkey. It wasn't anything prophetic. But then, after the fact... They came back. And I think it's the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit enabled them uh, to put two and two together later and say, oh, yeah, when he rode the donkey into Jerusalem. It's like what it says in Zechariah. We get it. And then, like Rick was saying this morning, you know, we have this benefit of, of history. We're looking at this. He was talking about Mary and her pregnancy and Joseph and how Joseph's going to respond to that. And we're on the other end of this. We're looking, oh, well, you know, it's all going to work out okay because we know it's Jesus and, and the power of the Holy Spirit that enabled her, you know, that, that caused her to conceive. And, and it's all good. So, you know, for us, it's no stress. For Joseph, it was nothing but stress, right? Okay, so we've got to put ourselves into the place of these people to try to understand how they're responding to this. The disciples didn't get it right then, but they got it later. And they made, made sense of this. So John puts that prophecy in there, quotes Zechariah to indicate that that's what was, was happening here. Word continues to spread about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Those that were there, they, they can't keep themselves from telling. Neither would you. If you had been there the day Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, knew Lazarus dead in the tomb four days, 
Jesus shows up. He talks to Martha. He talks to Mary. Goes to the grave. Next thing you know, he's telling them to take the rock, the stone away. And after a brief discussion with Martha, they take the stone away. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And here he is. If you had been there and if you had seen that, you wouldn't be able to shut up about it either. I'm pretty sure. Right? So many people at this point are believing in Jesus. That the Pharisees are moved to say, look, the world has gone after him. Now that may be a little bit of an exaggeration. Because we know not everybody believes. But I would say this. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, please consider again the fact that the people that were there and saw and knew Lazarus was dead and now he's not and knew that Jesus was the reason not just for the season Jesus was the reason why Lazarus is up walking around now please consider that does that motivate you maybe to come closer or even to actually make that step of belief to have faith in Jesus Christ as your savior Go on to verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Notice at this point that we skip verses 25 and 26. For now, we'll go on, uh, continue with 27. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, it's not completely clear at the beginning of this, verses 20 through 24, it's not completely clear to me at least whether Jesus was speaking to the Greeks who were looking for him 
or whether he was speaking to his disciples, or both. And when Jesus said, I think it's both, but it's just not clear. When Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, that's that's the kind of announcements you want to hear. If you're looking for some big thing to happen, and now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I imagine the disciples perked up a little bit in anticipation that Jesus would now be the Messiah they had been hoping for. Overthrowing the Romans and bringing prosperity and independence back to Israel. And if that's what they were thinking, Jesus' next words would have confused them considerably. What are you talking about, Jesus? Right? What possible connection could Jesus' glorification have to a seed that falls to the earth and dies and then bears much fruit? Glorification! Not death! Glorification! Oh, we understand this better than they did. Again, same thing, same principle. We are looking at it from the other side of the cross. If you are a Christian today, then the fruit borne by the death of Jesus, in part, is you. Without his dying on the cross, we would all still be dead in our sins. But because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, all of us have the opportunity to receive salvation, forgiveness of sin, and eternal life from Jesus Christ. And Jesus is glorified when we do so. He's glorified just by the potential, but He is glorified when we do so. Now that's not His only source of glory, but He is glorified by His death. Because through His death, we can be made alive in Him, and that is glory. And it's glory for us, but it's glory for Him. Now, Jesus makes it clear in verse 27 that though he struggles with the reality of the coming crucifixion, we see this in Matthew in a different, uh, in a different place as he's praying in Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Jesus did struggle with the reality of the coming crucifixion. But he makes it clear that that is why he came to earth in the first place. Jesus the Savior did come for to die. At this point, God the Father speaks audibly. And though the people don't understand necessarily that it is God, they don't necessarily make out the words of what he's saying, at least some of them do understand that it is a voice from heaven. God's words affirm Jesus' ministry so far, as well as what he will do on the cross and after the cross. And Jesus then links his crucifixion to the making of disciples. He said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus encourages those present to become his disciples while they still have the opportunity to do so. And I read that and it makes me wonder something. Every week here at the church, we offer an invitation. An invitation to become a Christian. An invitation to surrender your life to Christ and follow Him faithfully, right? That's what the invitation is about. To receive forgiveness of sins, to receive eternal life, and to follow Jesus. And we talk about the invitation always being open. You know, just because we have a formal time at the end of the service where we say, if you want to make a decision now, okay, that's fine. But what if you want to make a decision this afternoon or tomorrow or, you know, somewhere in the middle of the week? That's great. Call me. I don't care what time of day it is. Call me. All right. If uh, you live in a house where people have authority over you, ask them first. But call me. Okay. 
I want to know. I want to, I want to go there with you. I want, to, I want to share in that with you. But, and I believe that the, the invitation is always open as long as the person lives. But I also wonder, based on what Jesus was saying in here, if sometimes when a person knows the truth about Jesus, I mean, it's not, it's not a question of, is he really the Savior? Is he really God's Son? That's not really the issue. The issue is the heart thing. Do, am I ready to give my life to him? That's the question. So, and I wonder, if sometimes when a person doesn't respond to the invitation, if they aren't just a little closer to never responding to the invitation. And I'm, I was struggling with this as I was studying this and trying to prepare this message because I wonder if that may be the fulfillment of the prophecies quoted here from Isaiah. For a person who has the opportunity to believe, for a person who has the knowledge and conviction of belief, then there is the responsibility to believe. To deny belief in Jesus when all the facts are right there in front of you, places you in the category of the stiff-necked and the uncircumcised of heart that Stephen described in Acts chapter 7, verse 41. In that instance, there in Acts chapter 7, Stephen went on to say that those same people resisted the Holy Spirit. You remember their response? They didn't say, wow, Stephen, you're absolutely right. What we need is to humble ourselves and to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. No, they didn't do that. No, their response was to pick up big rocks and throw them at Stephen until he died. That was their response, which just kind of indicated the truth of what Stephen had been saying. Well, that's what it says here, the end of that last section. In spite of the many miracles of Jesus, some still did not believe. And it wasn't because they hadn't heard about the miracles. Who knows why? It's not really convenient for me to do that. There's some of that. We're going to be talking about them here in a little bit. Not really convenient for me to follow Jesus right now. Or, you know, i got other things I want to do more. Uh, yeah, you make a compelling case for Jesus, but that doesn't, that doesn't square with the things I want to do in my life. I, I understand that. But know that by making that choice... You are making a choice that potentially lasts for eternity. And I don't think it takes you to a very good place. Let's go to verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I, do not, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. 
And now I want to introduce verses 25 and 26 back in here uh, into this part of the passage. Earlier on there, but I, I think it aligns well with this section. Jesus said in verse 25, He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now I've called this section the crux of discipleship. And you might look at that and go, oh, why is he doing this? Okay, the, the word crux isn't used a lot anymore, so I thought I ought to explain my choice of words, and I put it on the screen there. Crux has several meanings, but the one I'm using is a main or central feature. Okay? So the, a main or central feature of discipleship, or you could even say features, I guess. In Latin, the word crux referred literally to an instrument of torture, often a cross or a stake, and figuratively to the torture and misery inflicted by means of such an instrument. Now, why would I choose crux then in correspondence to this? Well, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and I hope it's a, a verse with which you are very familiar, whether you know it by that passage reference or not. In Luke nine twenty-three, Jesus defined discipleship like this. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And see, I thought that made the word crux a very appropriate word for a discussion of what the main or central feature, the heart of discipleship is. As you might expect, there are several elements involved. Verses 42 and 43 of John 12 talk about the many rulers who believed in Jesus, but who were not confessing their faith in him to the others for fear of being put out of the synagogue. They loved the approval of men more than the approval of God, right? From Romans 10.9, we understand that a verbal confession of our faith in Jesus as Lord is necessary for salvation. Believe in your heart that God raised him to death. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, right? The verbal confession is necessary. To secretly believe and never to act on that belief is just like not believing at all. Well, as Jesus does throughout his ministry, he declares here his willful submission to the authority and direction of God the Father. He represents the Father. He speaks only what the Father tells him to speak. This example of submission shows us another indispensable element of discipleship. If we say we will follow Christ, but then we refuse to submit to his authority, or we refuse to obey his commands, then our claims of discipleship are empty and false. Christ's submission to God the Father sets the pattern and example for our submission to him. Now, we've already had several scriptures in John in which Jesus is referred to as the light of the world. And when it comes to discipleship, we need to remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 14 and through 16 to those who would be his disciples. He told them, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. 
and he gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so shining the light of Jesus in the world is an essential of true discipleship. Now, and I saved verses 25 and 26 for, the, for last because I thought that they fit this discussion of the crux of discipleship rather than you know, handle them up in, in the text where they first came. What's the bottom line? What's the bottom line for being a true follower of Jesus? Well, if you love the life that you have without Jesus and you try to hold on to that life, you're going to lose it anyway. If you hate that life, which means that you, you have to love that life less than you would love the life that you have with Jesus. If you hate your life without Jesus, then you'll find true life when you give yourself completely to Him and follow Him faithfully. Here's the thing. You can hold on to only one life at a time. Either you'll hold on to your own life, live it the way that you want to without regard for what Jesus wants, or you'll let go of your own life and take hold of the life that Jesus offers, living to please Him in every respect. There's no third option. And there's no way to combine those two things. Real discipleship, the crux of discipleship, is letting go of life without Jesus, and taking hold of the eternal life that only Jesus can provide. That life is a life of submission, sacrifice, and service, which, if you wanted to, could bring you full circle in this chap- chapter and bring you right back to Mary, couldn't it? Submission, sacrifice, and service. That's Mary to a T. That's what you're called to in discipleship as you deny yourself Take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. You know, the Bible never commands that we celebrate or even observe the occasion of Jesus' birth. Not in there. You know it. What we call Christmas was unknown to the early disciples. And I'm sure they would have a lot to say about some of the things that we do in the name of Merry Christmas, wouldn't they? Still, I don't think that celebrating Christ's birth is a bad thing. As long as we never forget that his birth was a prelude to his death. Jesus the Savior did come for to die. You know, really the conclusion and invitation of today's message come together. Because we've come to a place where the information presented demands a response. Are you already a Christian? then I urge you to examine yourself to determine whether you are practicing true discipleship or not. I'm not coming into your life and pointing a finger and saying, hey, you need to do that. If you're a Christian, you need to do that for yourself. I need to do that for me. Examine our lives to see whether we are truly following Jesus the way that He wants us to. You know, as an example, perhaps you confessed your faith in Christ to other believers when you became a Christian. Have you told anyone about your faith in Him lately? Are you truly submitting to His authority and commands? Jesus wants it for you, then that's what you want. That's what you do. 
Does His light shine in the world through your life? I would venture to say that for all of us Christians, there's room for improvement as we follow Jesus. And if you're not a Christian yet, let me ask you this. Is living a life that will ultimately be taken away from you what you really want? Where you live and you do things for you and you do everything the way you want to do it. But in the end, anything you might have accomplished, anything you might have accumulated, any sort of uh, progress you might have made will all be taken away. Is that the kind of life you want? Are you open to the idea that letting go of something that you can't hold on to anyway, in order to take hold of something that you can have forever, is that, does that idea appeal to you? What Jim Elliott said, the missionary to the Alka Indians in South America, he is no fool who exchanges that which he cannot keep for that which he can never lose. That idea idea appeal to you? Do you already believe? I mean, intellectually, do you have this information in your head? Yeah, I know. I know Jesus is God's Son. I know He's the Savior of the world. But are you putting off on acting on that belief? Does it bother you to think that once you know the truth, the longer you put off making a decision to follow Jesus, the less likely it is that you ever will make that decision? Every day that you know but you don't respond is the day farther from ever responding. Jesus offers real life. He offers abundant life. He offers eternal life. Jesus came to die on the cross so you could live, but he requires that you die to yourself and live for Him. And so if you haven't acted on your faith, I want to ask you, are you willing to take that step and become a true follower of Jesus Christ? If your answer is yes, please come forward as we sing our invitation song.